Good afternoon, good morning, good night, wherever you are in the world. Uh, welcome back to another conversation about COVID-19, sustainability, and the future of business. Today, I'm joined by Tamar Milne, a faculty member at Solder School of Business who's an expert in marketing. And we're here to talk about what brands should be doing uh, and what kind of messages, signals, ideas, and stories they should be selling and communicating to their customers in order to maintain uh, a good reputation and a good relationship with the folks that they work with. So I want to jump right in and ask you, Tamar, about what examples of bad branding and bad marketing that you've seen in the midst of this crisis? Sadly, I'm seeing quite a lot of it, Uh, even in my personal life, just the companies who are reaching out, taking this chance to let me know they're there for me when they might not have even had contact with me in months, years, and suddenly they're my best friend. So we're seeing a lot of companies who feel like they need to reach out right now. And and many do. I think consumers want to feel connected. They want to feel heard. They want to feel taken care of. They have lots of questions but companies that, you know, I see the number one mistake is companies that are just feeling like they need to say something. And so they're reaching out without thinking about the value that they're going to be able to offer when they're doing something like that, without the sensitivity of what people might be going through, the situation, the context, bigger picture. Mm. So I'd say that's a big one. I don't know if you've had any of those, but. Yeah, I had like an email from a, a car company. I won't name the car company who I bought a car from five years ago and I occasionally get it serviced by them. And I get like three emails over the course of two weeks from the president of this company talking about how concerned they are about me and how, you know, they want to support me. I was like, when I bought the car for cash and, uh, <laughs> cause car financing and lease payment, anyways, I bought the car for cash. And so it's like, I don't know what they would do for me. And two, it seems to me like what a lot of these brands are doing, the reason they're reaching out is just like, will help you defer some of your payments, which will probably just negatively impact your credit score. And right. it's not like you're actually canceling any of those payments. We're just like doing a short-term deferral. Like, is that why they're reaching out? I don't mm. know. This is my speculation. But yeah, uh, that those are certainly examples of, of, of bad, those kind of anonymous emails are sort of in person, like without yeah. any character, but what value they're trying to create. But uh, what about good? What, is, what does good look like in time COVID? Well, good looks like a company, well, I think good has a deeper foundation. So if a company is going to be considered um, responding well, kind of really providing value to consumers, I think that those who are best positioned are the ones who have had a clear sense of their purpose. They understood what they were meant to do, the value that they add. And I keep mentioning the word value. I mean, that's a, it's a core principle in marketing. It's fundamental. And I'm a BCom alumna from quite a few years ago now, but the, the marketing principles I was taught 20 something years ago, value was core and that has not changed in marketing. It's still the core of the best marketing. So if a company is clear on the value it's provided, it understands the people it serves, it understands how it makes their life better, then those companies are in a better position. Um, and it's not just about their products either. It's kind of uh, understanding the, the bigger impact they have in society and the planet, kind of the reason that society lets them exist. So that's a bit of a, a rambling runway to lead up to the companies uh, that are showing, I guess, strong COVID response or actually truly connecting with their consumers are those who had the sense of purpose before. So an example that I like to look at um, is, is Nike, um, the Nike Play at Home campaign that they launched fairly quickly after the crisis really escalated. It was true to what Nike offers, getting people moving. And this whole campaign focused on how can people continue to stay healthy while they shelter in place. Um, It's a sense of uh, or reflects the sense that Nike cares about the planet, but also cares about its consumers. And 
the the whole campaign did not seem like it was opportunistic. It feels like it's caring. It feels true to how Nike has built its communications over time. And so I think examples where a company is true to its purpose, understands the people it serves, sensitive to the issues that are going on in the world. And, and this could be, you know, this right now we're really focused on COVID-19, but what about climate change? Um, what about human rights? And um, a lot of the issues we're seeing right now arising in the world when we're all primed and, and emotional. These are the things that if companies understand their effect, their place, what their consumers are going through, those are some good responses. I think to companies that are thinking about that value part of what they offer can pivot really easily. I don't know if you heard about the the pizza chain or the pizza chain. I think it was a small chain in New York City that mm. uh, its business dropped off instantly, and it realized with its pizza ovens it could pivot and make face shields for hospitals. And so it you know didn't really have a strong takeout business, but it had these hot ovens and realized there was a need in the world. You know, there's a lot of assumptions that go into making something like that work, like the whole new supply chain. It's a whole new customer base for B2B, not B2C and those kinds of things. But really looking at how can we add value? I don't know. I talk a lot about value. It's core to marketing. So and that has not changed in the world. So it's know. almost like COVID is like this stress test for who the heck are you? Yeah, it really is. And, and, if, and if you don't know who you are, and so you're like car company who's basically selling me a commodity that's been like wrapped up in messaging, but really at the end of the day is a commodity. And you send me some impersonal email offering me basically credit deferral. Who are you really? Right. But Nike has this 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 deep relationship with their customers that's, you know, going to, you know, regardless of what's going on in the economy, uh, what's going on in the world, they'll find a way to pivot because if your well-being and fitness and activity level is what I'm trying to promote, mm -hmm. I have like a really clear sort of roadmap for what right. to do. Yeah. Right? And authenticity. Huh. You got to know who you are. You got to be able to. I mean, I always talk about whether it's personal branding or whether it's big corporate branding, small yeah. startup doesn't matter. Um, the best chance you have of building a strong brand is to be true to yourself. So really offering what you can, you know, making a promise and following through on a promise. That's what brand is. I read a quote once um, from a consultant, uh, last name is Zhivago, and it said, um, branding is the promises you make and a brand is the promises you keep. And that's really core here is companies that are trying to layer over something that's inauthentic. We're calling them on it. And we were really forgiving at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, much more than we normally were. And by we, I mean consumers, right? People people making decisions every day. We were much more forgiving before. And now we are starting to say, you should really have this figured out by now. Like mm. we're not going to be so forgiving anymore. And so a brand, a strong brand is about keeping promises. So when you know who you are, I like the way you put that, Justin, like a stress test for knowing who you are, knowing what you offer, really important right now. I mean, now more than ever, as the crises the world faces grow, it's just going to become more and more important. Mm -hmm. I, lo I love that framing. Like a branding is what you say and my brand is what you do. There's something something really interesting there. And yeah. so I, I guess what this, this sort of the overall thesis that you're seeing emerging is one, essentially consumers are calling out BS a lot faster. Like we were forgiving mm -hmm. for our first like six weeks and now it's like, okay, what are you actually going to do? Uh, <laughs> it, two, there's this, this, this distinction between action and intention. And like, we're really sort of developing this great filter. Three, really? COVID is helping these brands figure out, okay, this is what it's like for me to work in crisis. Maybe this is going to help me in crises to come. 
right? And, and I know this feels very like contemporary, but it's been fascinating to look at all of the uh, the current unrest and protests in the United States and how mm. how quickly so many brands are standing up in ways that in the past they would not have, right? Uh, and perhaps that is is born in some sort of new newfound sense of leadership that the private yeah. sector might be developing. But I guess uh, I'm curious, what if you're a brand, what if you're like a cruise company or an airline and COVID has just like decimated your business model and like there's literally no vision of what success in your future looks like. Like these companies are like, maybe we will stop like losing money every month sometime by the end of 2020, but that involves like selling half of our stuff. Mm. How do you, do you just say nothing? Like, what do you do? You, what do you, what's the best thing? How do you how do you how do you behave authentically when your entire world has just like crumbled around you? Well, the key. I mean, I don't really know how to save some of those industries, some of those product categories. Um, the I think you, the answer is in part of your question. How do you respond authentically? Um, another example of bad. Uh, marketing response, promotional response has been from some of the travel companies who have seen their businesses decimated. Um, uh, my husband and I went to a resort in Jamaica for our honeymoon um, 12-ish years ago. And uh, we just got an email from that company that was so tone deaf. It was just talking about worry-free, you know, and I know they're trying to connect on how worried everybody is, but it's, I'm thinking, worry, this is tone deaf. Something's wrong here. And it was just so it just completely ignored the issue altogether. So it's a difficult one, though, because some businesses will find it extremely difficult to pivot to something else, to communicate what they're doing. Um, in marketing, we talk about the components of an attitude. So an attitude is is um, an enduring belief or feeling or tendency to behave a certain way towards something. And it has those three components of uh, cognitive, like what you believe to be true, the fact, uh, affective, what you feel, and behavioral is a tendency to behave. It can even be a physiological response. Like you see a brand you love and you actually get a shot of oxytocin, you know, the love hormone in your body and those kinds of things happen. And so an attitude, people have formed instantly negative attitudes, very strongly held attitudes based on fear, which is the strongest affective component of an attitude around things like cruises, because that's where we heard about the, you know, early outbreaks and people can't escape. And it's just like a, you know, a, a virus cesspool. And, and so if you're going to change an attitude around that, just, just sharing something like facts around how we're, we're sanitizing more, or, you know, everybody's going to have a temperature check before they get on. That's only taking care of the cognitive aspect of the, the attitude. We need to find ways to get people to feel something. And that's where companies are, are not really sure what to do. They can't ignore it. They can't joke about it. Although I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I know I've um, collected a, a few ads where companies have sensitively tiptoed around this topic, kind of maybe laughing about things like how your relationships at home have needed more work and things like that. Some of the, the lighter side of of this um, experience, but you've, we've got to make, you know, we've got to address that fear and that's really difficult to do. And then the behavioral part is going to be, how do we get people taking a step toward it? And it might be something like, and I'm thinking on, on my toes here, I'm not even sure this is a great idea, but smaller doses of something, how do we try it in a smaller way, a simpler way, easier way to get people more comfortable and realize. And I'm in my mind, I'm thinking about an example back with, um, this goes way back now to, I think, um, what was it? Was it 2006 when we had 
mad cow disease uh, in can- Canadian beef, right? It was kind of this this fear, and, the, and instantly people stopped eating beef. And our approach to resolving that in the the beef industry was we we approached it from a cognitive, affective, and behavioral component. We gave all the information about how was this able to happen, and what were we doing to make sure that. Um, any contaminated meat would never get into the food system and facts, 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 but people were making decisions based on fear. And so then we had to try and connect on an emotional level. So in Canada, we focused on things like um, national pride. We got Canadians to eat more beef. So we showed a lot of, you know, very wholesome farmers and national pride. And we even, um, uh, Paul Martin was the prime minister at the time. And um, the premier of Alberta was Ralph Klein. And they sat down together to a televised steak dinner, you know. Half the province, half the country are like, oh, this is a great opportunity. And the other half are like, nothing happens. But it was shocking in a way that these very important figures in Canada sat down and ate beef. And it was, you know, emotional. It shocked us. And then um, the behavioral part, we actually started working with, um, I say we, like I was part of this, but I mean, I studied this. I looked at this case a lot. the, the beef industry, the government, Canada, we worked with um, Cattlemen's Association. We worked with restaurants, to steak restaurants, high-end restaurants, and really worked on bringing people back in ways that were you know, small bites at a time almost. We definitely did not discount. Do not discount the beef because then there's something wrong with it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of an elaborate example off topic, but it it shows the need. And actually our, our beef industry bounced back as, you know, as much as it is, as it could other things, veganism, and vegetarianism and healthy diets, et cetera, are affecting it also. But, um, that triple pronged approach, hmm. we think about that a lot in marketing, the cognitive, the affective, the behavioral. So this is a long answer to your question about what do these industries do and how do they communicate? And I think they have to be quite creative. I don't know. Hmm. I have another example from my personal life, but I've been going on a bit here. I don't know if you had something uh, uh, you wanted to you, This discounting question, mm. that's fascinating. So if a cruise gets cheaper, there's going to yeah. be a certain segment of the population is like, boy, is that a great deal for a cruise? Yeah. But there could be another segment of the population is like, cheaper. I want the cruise to be more expensive. Yeah. If it's cheaper, that means they ha- aren't improving their safety. They're not improved. Like, how could it get cheaper when presumably, you know, I want fewer people on the ship. Yeah. I don't want to go on a full ship. I want a ship with half capacity. I want a sh- yeah. I want a larger room. I only want an outside cabin or whatever it might be. Uh, same thing might, could end up being true for airlines where it's like they're going to be so desperate to fill their planes again and get people flying to Jamaica to use your example. But if it's cheaper, you might have that same kind of impulse. Be like, mm-hmm. well, if they were- Could know, be. Like, I don't know. It's, it makes it so hard to, to behave. I think there'd be some interesting research from that because I've seen varying studies on consumers and and even generational cohorts and their response to this. Um, The millennials, Gen Z being more, um, the latest one I read was uh, talking about how those millennials and Gen Z, I mean, we talk a lot about how they care, you know, they really kind of demanding the most from companies. We haven't yet seen it in action, but they Mm. talk a good talk um, that they are more caring and more communal, more Mm. considerate. But they're also um, more adventurous. And so we might see that that low price on a flight or a vacation of some kind, it could attract them. I think we're going to have to see that it um, the 
the small bites, like that's what I think is getting people that behavioral component of an attitude change, mm. small steps, and then people will leap. It is kind of the general idea. It's a generalization. It doesn't always happen. And so that might have to start with certain uh, segments of the market. I mean, marketing, we're always segmenting. We're thinking mm. about different um, parts of the market. But, Demographics, attitudes, yeah. ages. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, this question of attitudes, what I'm so fascinated by, and I've, I've brought this up in, in previous conversations here, is just like how much COVID will permanently shape the attitudes, especially of people who whose future have been most significantly impacted by this. So it's like right. there might be certain segments of people who are like, oh, my retirement portfolio shrunk a little bit. I might have to work for a couple extra years. But then mm -hmm. there's also going to be whole segments of the market where it's like, the entire viability of my career is no longer there or right. like my ability to enter the job market was just delayed by four years because of a sustained economic contraction. So those people might have, well, even if prices are lower or they, we send different signals, their attitudes might permanently be shaped like people who come out of the depression, like mm -hmm. great depression, you know, even if they're, uh, you know, very wealthy, have a, have a sort of an older relative who, like he, he survived World War II and, yeah. and immigrated to Canada and ended up making millions of dollars, but he was still in his 80s walking up and down the alleys of his neighborhood collecting bottles. It sounds like my grandpa, same thing. Right? Yeah. And he didn't need, and he didn't need it. He, yeah. he had literally millions of dollars in the bank. And oh, that, that part doesn't sound like my grandpa, but the rest are <laughs> comfortable anyway. But he's collecting bottles. He's very comfortable. He didn't need a, he didn't need a penny and he's collecting bottles. And I'm like, what's the COVID equivalent of that? That person, oh. it, it, like that, those attitudes. And I suppose that might be one of the scariest things to brands mm -hmm. is that they're now going into a great unknown yeah. of like, we don't even know who our segments are and what their attitudes are anymore. So they're so overwhelmed with fear and, and trauma and dislocation and insecurity, instability mm -hmm. that like trying to figure out what the right conversation is with them seems like small bites to your, but, to your point, right? You know, it's interesting though, because I kept worrying about my son. I have an eight-year-old son and I kept worrying, is he going to be scarred? Is he worried? Mm -hmm. Is he anxious? He's not. He's bored. He misses <laughs> his friends. And, but he's loving yeah. time, more time with two incredibly busy working parents who are actually not home as much. You should see the sign I had to put on my door so that he wouldn't interrupt us today while we're um. talking. But there's a lot, I mean, that question about what's permanent and what's not as a marketers, we're all, we're just like, we're researching that. Um, mm -hmm. Red Havis just put out a new report about COVID trends. And, um, but one of the, you know, everybody's trying to forecast what are the permanent changes versus the temporary changes, because that's going to shape the strategy of a business, right? How, yeah. you know, and then how long is this going to last? Because the temporary changes, we still, right now we're looking at still a significant amount of time that we need to, um, kind of hold things together to mm -hmm. be able to emerge from this. One of the trends that seems to be, and I think you and I might've already talked about this is e-commerce. I mean, mm -hmm. um, people who were hesitant before, I was hesitant. I'm a hesitant online shopper. My husband is not. Mm. And I have just, I have bought everything. I haven't left the house. I haven't been in a store in yeah. two months, you know? Yeah. And I realized that it's easier than I thought on lots of things that I never would have considered. And there's the odd thing I would have bought online before. Um, but now I'm, the barrier's been broken. People were forced. And um, some parts of the world, even where e-commerce is not as well established, are starting to see that they you know, companies who can come in and help establish that infrastructure and get the systems going and, and are <laughs> jumping ahead of the curve. There's a potential here for that. If you're, if you're banking on that being kind of a, one of the permanent shifts and, and I am another interesting one that's come up has been the trade-off we're willing to have in many com countries where we've really um, 
embraced and fought for privacy, right? It's like, oh, the companies cannot collect information. Governments cannot collect information. And how are you using it? And we have all this focus on privacy. But it's interesting when you look at countries like uh, South Korea and New Zealand, where um, they were willing to trade off a lot of that privacy for freedom. They want mm-hmm. freedom to move about. So tracing apps, tracing software, mm-hmm. the, the government says we need this to be able to be comfortable letting people roam more freely. You know, that's giving up some privacy rights. So that's another interesting one to companies, um, especially companies in that field yeah. of data collection and tracking and tracing and all those things. Wow. So this, even that might be, that's one that I'm not sure if that's permanent. We, this might go on long enough that we get used to it Yeah. and we're just comfortable with a different level. It's a trade-off we're willing to make. I, w- I was looking at, yeah. you, you reminded me of a couple examples. One is in like in Hong Kong, when you get off the plane and if you're an international traveler coming into Hong Kong, it's one, it's an extremely uh, rigorous screening process, can take up to now 10 extra hours in the airport alone. And then that. you have to go home with a, uh, a wrist monitor on. Wow. And yeah. it, it monitors your self-quarantine. Because I know here in British Columbia, we're like, okay, so here's some documents. Please go and quarantine yourself. And we sort of rely on some like wholesome Canadianness in the hopes that people do what they're <laughs> supposed to say they're going to do. But that obviously doesn't work out very well. No. We're looking at one jurisdiction in Canada, New Brunswick, a province in, in the east of mm. our province, where there was a doctor who traveled from Quebec uh, where there was much more outbreak happening into New Brunswick and didn't quarantine and then treated 150 patients over the course of a couple of days and has now triggered a reemergence of a province-wide lockdown because right. of his his behaviors. And yeah. so we could see that the only way to get back to any kind of normalcy or business as usual is to make these sacrifices in our privacy. And so mm-hmm. uh, that that's a little little – it's going to be challenging because there's going to be some societies that have strong senses of collectivism who mm-hmm. uh, who are much more willing to like abide by those kinds of directives and then there's going to be some societies who have strong sense, senses of individualism western societies in particular like don't right. tread on me type societies right. we're going to be much 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 less likely to involve accept or engage in that kind of invasion of their privacy so that's one thing that i noticed that the other was this uh, company called clear and what clear does is they do like pre-screening for airports in the united states and so you can sign up and pay them an annual fee and what they do is they do an intensive background check and they have like biometric samples of your irises and whatnot and your fingerprints so that you can get through security lines way clearer, um, way more quickly. They're now selling this service and software to corporations for managing who is allowed in and and, or not into their own facilities, whether it's like research facilities or even office buildings. Mm. So it could be that in order to get back to the office, you're going to have to have a clear passport. And so a private company tracking your health records, tracking where it is you went, with your consent in order to be able to get back to work. And so we are going to be witnessing like, this is totally like outside of the domain of business. This is much more like a political issue, but what we think is an acceptable level of privacy uh, and whatnot, but it's going to strain a lot of our relationships with customers. It's going to strain our relationship with government because there could be businesses that have values here over there. Who knows? right? Well, we need to say businesses with different values. It actually, as you're saying that, I started to think about all the taboo businesses, you know, or mm. industries that are on the, on the fringe of society where, because I think privacy is an abstract concept, you know, versus freedom, I mean, privacy and freedom. And mm. I might say, sure, trace my, my steps so that I can get out and about and enjoy life again. But as soon as that tracing actually reveals some of my, you know, my patterns, maybe, hmm, is that, 
I think maybe, maybe people, I don't know, I start to wonder, I have nothing to base this on, but I start mm-hmm. to think, wouldn't it be interesting to follow? How do we behave better? I mean, it's one of the, the things we look at in consumer behavior because it, with one form of research in particular, something like observational research, where we watch subjects to see how they really behave versus what they say they're going to do. I mean, we survey people and everybody's answers are much more sustainably responsible and mm-hmm. socially responsible. And I'm a kind person. And of course I'd never break the rules. And then we watch what they do. And it's a very different story when you see what people actually do. Um, I was in my undergrad, I was part of the, the famous world famous condom research that Darren Dow, um, Jerry Gorn, Chuck Weinberg, Sauter's quite well known for that research. Mm-hmm. And when people, I used to stand in drugstore aisles and dressed in like shoppers drug mart uniform and watch people shop. I was doing observational research and people, um, if they spotted me, you could see in some people, not everybody, but attention, like something changed. And so when people know they're being watched, their mm-hmm. behavior can change. Sometimes that effect shifts after a while. Like once we get comfortable and we forget we're being watched, then we mm-hmm. might revert I don't know. It's going to be, it should be, a, a, you know, it's an interesting area of study. I'm not a researcher. I'm a practitioner. So I'm more yeah. on the industry side, but um, I think that there's going to be out of this. I was talking to a few of our researchers at Sauter, some of the ideas for their future mm-hmm. research. They're just blossoming. I mean, you probably got some of that maybe from, from mm-hmm. Daniel Scarlicky and Werner Antweiler, but, um, and Dave Hardesty, just the kinds of things that are going to be really interesting to study going all forward. These new, all these new angles. So oh. It's, it seems to me, though, that the COVID, like COVID is in, highlighting the importance of all sorts of different functions. So I think one function of an organization that it's really highlighted is like, you better have your supply chain on lockdown. Like mm-hmm. this reliant, reliance on anonymous providers, suppliers, you, you better have a relationship with them, if not redundancy. Right. But the other thing, thing to me is it seems to have done a lot to emphasize the importance of a of having a marketing department that's not just seen as a department responsible for the generation of sales, but a marketing department that's responsible for like, what is our value and has a very, very large role, if not leading role to play in, in defining overall strategy. So yes. I, I'm curious if, if, if you've seen that examples of that, or if companies who've centered marketing more effectively in the organization, or if, if, if there's just sort of perspectives that you'd offer to, mm. to learners in this space about how to like be, more ambitious in your application of marketing principles and do a better job of sort of like fighting for your seat at the table as opposed to seeing just like as a nice to have type thing. Because yeah. COVID seems to suggest to me it's a must have like right. skill set and function. Well, it is. It, um, I mean, I have a bias. I tell all my students and I think business is marketing. Marketing is business. I mean, you think about it, you've got a customer whom you need to serve and you better have something of value and you have to create that value develop, distribute that value, price that value, communicate that value. That's marketing, essentially. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to serve people. So I have this bias that I think in in situations like this, the marketing has to be strong. The people have to be core at, at the table looking at this. I mean, marketing is the one that the part of the business that looks at trends. We're always watching, you know, permanently horizon scanning. My husband tells me I'm pessimistic because I'm always like, what could, what could go wrong? But it, also, what could the opportunities be? But this kind of constant scanning to see what's going on in marketing feeds that information. It's not like we're the only department and division in a company that does that, but definitely marketing is looking at, you know, we've got our, we're taking the temperature. We're really in touch with the consumers if we're doing it well. So mm-hmm. the companies who have always been marketing based and not marketing in terms of just promotion, really great ad campaigns, but um, like award-winning ad campaigns that don't necessarily show connection and insight with the the market, the companies. And, you know, I bring up Nike, but I bring up a company like Unilever 
which is a corporate brand doesn't, it, you know, the corporate brand doesn't have so much the consumer connection, but every single one of Unilever's brands is um, precision focused on the people that that brand serves, people whom it, it serves and understanding their, you know, pain points, their mm-hmm. conditions, their environment. So all of that is helping like Unilever is actually a company that is thriving in this right now. I'm not I mean, thriving is, is, is an opportunistic way, but really seeing its business um, solidify its purpose. Um, that part of that comes from 60%, something like 60% of Unilever's revenues come from developing countries, really focusing on the back to basics products of, of improving people's lives at the fundamental level um, hygiene, health, safety, those kinds of things. A lot of those, um, are the kinds of products that Unilever carries and, but they're, they've solidified, they're clear on who they are. They know the value they provide. They're not forgetting that. And they're consumer focused, they're attuned, they're responsible, they're committed. So it's not about how can I, um, you know, get filthy rich off of this pandemic or climate change or whatever the crisis is. It's this idea that, um, the future of business is in solving these problems, is in mm. serving the planet, is in deeply understanding the people we serve and trying mm. to figure out the best way to do that. So that sounds like it's Pollyanna, perhaps. I mean, I've been teaching sustainability marketing and um, for at, at UBC now for I'm just wrapping up my lucky 13th year. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's changed in that time. And at the beginning of it, it really, everyone would say, oh, that's easy for you to say, you know, you, you're from a wealthy country. You, um, you've never had to struggle like we have, you know, um, of course, um, uh, you know, we, we can find niche examples of companies, but no big company can do this because it's like turning the Titanic. That's shifted now where a lot of my students and the companies I work with and, and study and read about as well, they're seeing things differently. They're saying, this is, this is core. This is, you know, crises like this are not going away. Being really clear on the people we serve, the value we provide. I'm kind of looping back and repeating myself Mm -hmm. now, but these are fundamental principles. So the companies who get that and care about that, they're the ones who are going to be innovative. So I I do want to pull you then towards that, those, those next crises, because Mm. like COVID has forced us to learn so much about so many things so quickly. Like I can make face masks instead of pizzas and I can like buy things comfortably online and I can vacation in different ways and I can actually work from home and not have it be that effective. It's been amazing to see how many companies are just like, actually, why do we spend so much money on an office? Yeah. It's like the equipment, you know, but, uh, it's that question of crises, which I'm really interested in because it's shown us that we can manage crises really well. Mm-hmm. We actually can, mm-hmm. right? We can survive. We can, especially if you have a purpose. And so what, what would you hope to see companies learn from their approach to, to COVID and the good approaches you've seen to COVID when it does come to the sort of the next crises to come the ones that haven't gone away. It's just that they're not on right. the front of the agenda right now. And, 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 and primary amongst those obviously is, is climate. Right. Um, well, I think it comes back to purpose, um, which you just mentioned that, that um, we used to talk about purpose and in, in the last few years, we've seen lots of companies, even, you know, Larry Fink, uh, BlackRock talking about purpose. If you don't have purpose, then we're not going to buy your stocks. And a lot of companies, so we can articulate a purpose. That's fine. But when the crises hit, whether it's um, COVID-19, whether it's climate change, whether it's water, whether it's human rights, civil war, whatever it is. 
um, the companies who have actually honestly zeroed in on their purpose and that the purpose is more than just to make the shareholders fabulously wealthy. That's not a bad thing, but there's more than that. They have a better chance because people will, you know, they can dig deep and then get innovative and creative about what does that look like? How do we, how do we pivot on that? How do we um, address the issue? How do we contribute that value? What are people most concerned about now that connects with what we're doing? And if you mm. haven't done that work in, in really done that work, and it's not a box checking exercise. Okay. We've got a purpose. We've slapped it on the wall and now we're good. We're good for any crisis. It's not like that. Mm. It's an ongoing, I mean, this is a fluid thing. It changes slowly. If you have a new purpose statement every month, you're, it's not authentic. It's not deep. It's not real, but really kind of figuring out your why, um, and refining that and checking in with consumers and so not just with surveys. I'm talking about getting out there and seeing how the people you serve are using your product and what it's doing for them and what problems it's causing. Constantly scanning, can, can we improve? I mean, sustainability as a concept has a continuous improvement component built right into it. Like mm. You're never satisfied because we aren't truly sustainable right now. And mm. even when we get to that point, if you're a marketer, that's what, like marketing and sustainability combined because a marketer is always trying to outvalue the competition. So how can I do this even better? Hmm. How can I reduce my costs or reduce the inconvenience or make my product cooler while also thinking about it kind of, you know, impact, et cetera, down the road and, and a long-term strategy. So again, that sounds kind of big picture strategy, but the companies. So my big takeaway, like what I'm seeing is companies and, you know, when, when we're reading LinkedIn articles or um, Forbes articles with a lot of contributor articles, the leaders are now talking about purpose differently. Like mm. um, not just everybody should have it and it motivates employees and it's no, it allows us to be innovative, creative, problem solving, um, responsive, agile, all of these words that we're now realizing in a never again, normal world, whatever is disrupting that norm. Um, we're hearing it now and they've got much more concrete examples. So it's, to it's, tie it back to your, to your earlier thing, it's kind of like, okay, if there's the one lesson we're learning, it's find your purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Find your why there's lots of people, but now you're seeing purpose translating into brand, not branding. Yeah. Right. So it's not purpose-driven branding, but nope. purpose-driven brand. Yeah. And that COVID is almost like, like what we talked about, the stress test to help Let's figure that out. So absolutely. I, I really love that. I love that perspective. So I'm going to end with one personal question. <laughs> uh, what is one habit? You've already talked about your newfound uh, inclination to shop online. So I won't, yeah. I'll ask you to find another example. <laughs> I'm not going nuts because I'm very conscious of yeah, my consumption. You're, you're, so. good, you're a good person, Tamar. But um, uh, <laughs> thank you, Justin. What is one, what is new, one new habit that you think you've developed in, in, the, in the midst of all of this that you hope you hold on to? Oh, well, you know, what's funny is I have this newfound understanding of my tendency to be introverted. I didn't realize before, but anyway, so at the start of this whole, the whole kind of our change of our, our way of life, at first I cocooned and I isolated and I just kind of reveled in the fact that I didn't have to look up from what I was doing and engage with other people. I really love engaging with other people, but it, I need a lot of time alone. Anyway, mm. what I have found though, since I lifted my head and looked around and it's a new habit, I'm, I think was always in my mind, but I'm building it now is the the um, professional development opportunity that exists between peers. And so like, I've learned a ton from you, for example, a ton from you, just in our conversations about these topics. 
um, all of the materials our colleagues are are putting out their articles or little little videos, many of which you, know, you are known to be producing and, and mm-hmm. do such a good job of giving us channels for this. There's so much there, but we're also teaching each other best practices more. And I used to tap into that almost like when I needed it, you know, when I was in a, not a crisis is too big, but in a, in a pinch point of something, oh, I got to do this thing. How do I, now I've turned it into a habit of connecting with people. I think as an introvert, I like this environment where I can do a lot of one-to-one connection, Mm -hmm. even though it's on screen, I do, I'm a hugger. So I'm missing that, but I am, it's become a habit that I am checking in much more proactively with my peers. Mm -hmm. And I've found that the learning through these um, digital channels is actually something, I mean, I'm exhausted at the end of the day often, but there is so much to learn Mm -hmm. uh, from each other. So I'm making that a habit and I have actually more calls with colleagues and chats than I ever did before, even when we were down the hall from each other. And I think that that's a good habit. I think that um, there's so much richness. It's solder is unbelievable, the amount of knowledge we have there. And it's been fun to tap into that. And I don't want it to stop. So I have done less reading of books, which is probably not a good habit to set aside, but um, much more connecting with the knowledgeable people in my network. I love that. You're really making me think that when we're on the other side of this, you know, there's those colleagues, you know, but you don't really know that you don't kind of acknowledge, but it's not like a deep level of acknowledgement. And now I find myself reflecting on the level of gratitude I'll have for actually getting to connect with people in a meaningful way. So it's been a much more diverse, um, you know, cross pollination, even within our faculty. (laughs) Excellent. Well, listen, thank you, Tamar. Thank you. This has been uh, really enjoyable. Thank you for taking the time. Very much appreciate it. And we'll talk to you soon. So fun. You bet. Thanks, Justin.